Okay. Um, if you wouldn't mind, that'd be great. I might, I might still do it myself for the sake of ease. Is that right? Okay. I'll, I'll meet you halfway. Sorry. So, Lord, we pray you'll bless your word to us now. Amen. I think when we, we read verses like this, um, we can sometimes have an instinctive reaction that these verses are quite heavy and they deal with quite a heavy subject that perhaps we, we feel a bit uncomfortable about um, grappling with. The wonderful thing about expository preaching, preaching through a book of the Bible, is that you can't avoid the bits that you, you find challenging. You have to grapple with them. You can't just pick and choose and dive about. You have to, this is what's in front of us. This is the word of God. All scripture is given to us. Um, let's grapple with it. Um, but I think a lot of Christians or professing Christians would find this um, problematic. They would find it challenging. They would find it a bit outside their normal experience. And um, they might even find it a bit threatening and a bit um, heavy and a bit onerous. But you know what, friends? I'm a firm believer that the church of Jesus Christ expressed in the local church, a local church like this, it might be bigger than this, it might be small, it might be a dozen people, it might be a thousand people. The local church is a great gift of God to his people. The local church, a church where where we belong, where there's a, a system of membership, where we know each other, where we care for each other, where there's accountability, is a wonderful safeguard for the Christian to stop us from going astray, to keep us walking that narrow path which leads to glory. The church is a wonderful institution. The church is an, is an essential safeguard for Christians. It's God's ordained way of doing Christianity. Christopher told me off, he said, I do that all the time these days. This is God's way. There is no other biblical way of being a Christian, apart from being in a church. And not just going to a church, but being involved in a church. Throwing in your lot with a group of people and saying, these are my people. I'm going to commit to these people. Last week, Aaron dealt with the sheep that wandered from the flock. Today, Jesus is talking, giving practical wisdom and teaching about how to deal with a brother or sister in the church who sins against you. There is a proper biblical protocol, um, steps to be taken to ensure this is done in a way which honours God, which is beneficial for all concerned. Let's Let's be honest about church life. Church life, we've got real people from different walks of life, different experiences. Some are mature Christians, some are very young Christians. And different personalities. And some, some people in the church have their own idiosyncrasies, and, and me included, strange, funny little ways, and all of us are sinners saved by grace. So we rub along together, and we make mistakes, and sometimes we wind each other up. Sometimes we have misunderstandings, like any family. I'm sure if you've got a family, um, a blood, flesh and blood family, you, you know what it's like. You have disagreements from time to time. Married couples not always peace and harmony, is it, all the time? In church life, it's inevitable that sooner or later, 
you are going to have some kind of conflict with somebody in the church. Or let's not use the word conflict, some kind of disagreement um, with somebody. And it's possible and even probable that sooner or later somebody will do something against you which is a sin and which hurts you, which offends you. If that happens, the person that's committed this sin has a responsibility before the Lord to come to you and make peace with you, to be reconciled to you. How do I know that? Matthew chapter 5, cast your mind back many months to the beginning of Matthew. Therefore, if you are offering a gift, your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother and sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So if you or I have wronged someone in the church, we have a responsibility to go to that person, to make peace, to, to confess the sin, to apologize, and if necessary, make restitution, to pay back, um, if we can, to make amends for what we've done. Well, what happens if that the person that has wronged you never does that? They never come to you and make an attempt to make peace with you. What should you do? Should you just ignore it? Should you just overlook it? Should you pretend it never happened? Should you go around and gossip to everyone in the church and tell them how badly you've been treated? Should you speak to the elders and ask that person to be removed from the church? Should you write something on social media about this person? I mean, we might titter, but actually these things happen, don't they, in churches? And all kinds of damage is done because people do not follow the biblical pattern that we see here today. So let's suppose somebody sinned against you. What process are we going to go through, given to us by Jesus, in order to remedy the situation? And I want to consider four points today. Sorry, my graphics are not as good as Aaron's, but I've made an, a noble attempt. Okay. The first thing we need to ask is, why is this process necessary? Why are we that bothered about sin anyway in the church? The second is, what is the goal of this process? If we're going to, going to, to correct a brother or sister who sinned against us, what on earth are we try, trying to achieve? What's the kind of ideal goal that we're aiming for? The third question is, what are the essential checks? So let's suppose a brother or sister sinned against you and you want to, to have it out with them, you want to deal with it in a biblical way. What do you need to look at in your own heart before you go to this person to make sure you're, you're actually authorized to do this, you're in the right place to do this? And fourthly, what are the steps to take according to Jesus? Let's go to the first question. Why is this process necessary? In many churches, you will find that when sin is committed in the church, it is basically overlooked. People turn a blind eye to it. People don't want to rock the boat. And so a lot of things happen in these churches and I've been in churches like this, so I know I'm not just speculating about fictional churches. I've been in churches where church discipline has not been carried out and all kinds of problems have come about. What are the dangers of it? There are dangers if we leave sin uncorrected in the church. The first danger is for the sinner themselves, for the person that's committed this sin against you, there is a danger for them. The risk of apostasy. 
What does apostasy mean? Apostasy means turning away from God, turning your back on him, completely falling away from the faith. And I believe that when somebody commits a sin, let's be honest, we all commit sin, but an unrepentant, unconfessed sin, an unrepentant sinner, that person is in danger, in spiritual danger, or potentially in spiritual danger. Remember in chapter 18, verses 7 to 9, Jesus says, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And he says about the eye as well. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. So the Lord Jesus has said that sin and the causes of sin are to be ruthlessly dealt with in a Christian's life. If there is something causing you to sin, if, if it's at all possible, you need to get rid of it, whatever the cost may be, because your soul is in danger of the fire of hell if you carry on down this path. It really is that serious. Sin is not something we can trifle with or mess around with. Sin, if you're walking on the path of sin, can put you on a very, very dangerous path, and the end of that path is destruction, the loss of your soul. So if somebody has sinned against you and has not sought reconciliation with you and seems to be unrepentant, there is a good chance that person is walking down a wrong path. It's a sign that this person is in a bad place spiritually, potentially. And if this sin is not checked, if this sin is not dealt with, this person may continue down this dangerous path all the way to completely falling away from the faith, denying the Lord Jesus, ruining their witness, and bringing disgrace upon the gospel. So, in a sense, when somebody begins to sin, and doesn't show any concern, it is like the sheep that starts to wander away from the flock. I mean, it's not too late. The whole point of this process is to bring that person back, if at all possible, before they wander any further. But unrepentant sin is a sign of danger in the life of a Christian. And if you find yourself sinning and you're not not terribly bothered about it, then you need to really do some business with God and say, "What, what is my Christian life? There's a verse in 1 John. John, 1 John says this, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him nor known him. Dear friends, not one person in this room lives a sinless Christian life. There's no such thing as perfection in this life. But the Bible makes it clear, if we continue to sin, continue to walk in sin as a pattern of life, if our life is marked by carnality and worldliness and sin, then the Bible would say your testimony as a Christian is in doubt. You cannot call yourself a Christian. You cannot regard yourself as a Christian if you continue to walk in sin as a pattern of life and you just don't care. You don't repent and you don't turn back. If someone lives like that, there's a good chance that person may not be truly converted. They may never have known the Lord Jesus. If you were, we're having, imagine if we were having a church picnic on Beachy Head. I haven't been up there for years. 
It's a nice place, but don't get too near the edge. Imagine we were having a church picnic. We were throwing a frisbee around, and we saw one of us was getting closer and closer to the precipice of the cliff. What would you do? Would you just laugh and watch them walk towards it? And of course, you would, you would scream. You'd throw yourself in front of them to stop them walking off this cliff. And dear friends, when a, when a, a professing Christian starts dabbling with sin, starts going down this path, which can lead to destruction, the loving thing to do for the sake of that dear person it's just like on beachy head to stop that person falling off the cliff is to try with all our might with all our effort to stop that person that Christian from following this path which leads to hell and that's what the purpose of this is I believe the church has a responsibility the local church to warn people to plead with people even to judge people in a sense doesn't that sound radical today in church? Oh, we mustn't judge. People take that verse out of context so many times. We're not to be hypocritical judges, but we are to make a judgment. It's essential that we make a judgment. How else are you, you going to know if there's false teaching in your church if you don't make a kind of judgment? And it's far better to be judged by a church, put out of a church for the sake of turning you back, than to stand before God and be judged by him and be judged guilty. So the individual sinner is at great risk. Secondly, there's a risk for the church, the risk of compromise, contamination. This is not just about the individual Christian. First and foremost, it's about them, the lost sheep who wanders away, but it's also about the church. And if you're a Christian, you will have a God-given zeal for the church of Jesus Christ, a God-given love for her, a desire to see her prosper, talking about the church, a desire to see the church be as pure as she possibly can be in this life, a desire for her witness to be maintained to the world. If someone in the church, a professing Christian, sins and does not repent and does not turn back and continues in their sin, there, there are big dangers for the church. First of all, Others in the church may see that person and especially weaker believers and young Christians may see that and and reckon that sin may be acceptable. Imagine a church where one of the pastors is committing adultery with a woman in the church and everybody knows about it. Um, This happened in, uh, my friend from South Africa told me this happened in his church. All the elders knew about this, but they were... um, because this man brought so much money into the church and donated so much, they were reluctant to deal with this. So we've got somebody committing adultery. Everyone knows about it. It's the elephant in the room, but nobody deals with it. Nobody tackles it. Imagine if you were a younger believer in this church. You found, found out this was going on, and you didn't know any better. You might say, well, this is a prominent person in the church doing this. There can't be anything wrong with it. Maybe I should cheat on my wife as well if the opportunity arose. It might not be something so severe as that. It might be somebody in the church who knows it's wrong, but says, well, if that person can get away with it, I can get away with it as well. Do you see the danger of one person's sin contaminating the church, being a bad example to others? 
come to that in a minute. In 1 Corinthians 5, which is a great chapter about church discipline, Paul says this, don't you know that a little, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? If, you, if you're into baking, I don't know, Great British Bake Off, I've never seen it, don't really want to see it, but if you're baking, making bread, a bit of yeast works through the dough. And in the Bible, least, yeast, least, least, yeast and leaven, leaven is, is a picture of sin. And just imagine the church like a, a loaf of bread, or it's, you know, dough, a great big pile of dough is going to become bread. And that yeast, we want yeast to make bread rise, but in this case, the yeast is pernicious and dangerous because it spreads throughout the whole thing. And that is why it's so essential that sin is not allowed to proliferate and spread in the church. That others might take um, bad examples. Come back to this chapter. We need to refer to some of these other verses. Verse, verse 7, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. If your sin is causing other people in the church to regard sin as acceptable, you are in big trouble. Jesus says, woe to you. Because you are causing potentially weaker people, weaker brothers and sisters to sin, and that is far from loving. And Jesus also says that, that things that cause people to sin should be ruthlessly cut off. And if your presence in the church is causing other people to sin or might cause other people to sin, you also need to be cut off for your sake and for the sake of the church before untold damage is done. There's a danger the church might lose its saltiness. What did Jesus say? If the salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled by men. And dear friends, you won't have to go far to find churches that have completely lost their saltiness. It's just like the world, full of carnal, unconverted people. Probably you find some genuine believers there as well who are crying out for the word of God. That's what can happen if sin is allowed to run unchecked in a church. Some churches might say, well, we're far too loving to administer this kind of discipline in our church. We don't, I had a pastor once say to me, he said, my job is not to be a spiritual policeman. No, his job was to be a shepherd. We're not to be, we're not a cult, we're not busybodies. We do have freedom as Christians before the Lord, but as part of a church, we do have a responsibility to watch out for each other. That's the loving thing to do. The unloving thing to do is to let people carry on as however they want and cause untold damage and destruction in the church. The church becomes just worldly and, and awful and sinful, doing things that God hates. Dear friends, the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be holy, not perfect. We are a set, a set apart people, a sanctified people. God has taken us from this world to be different, to be godly, to be righteous, saved by grace, prepared in advance for good works. Imagine a church that is just infested, contaminated by sin, by people just carrying on, living just like the world, and nobody's saying anything at all. What a bad witness to the world that would be. You know, what, what have they got to offer a church like that? What have they got to offer the unbelieving world? Come and be just like us. Church like that becomes weakened, ungodly, divided, divisive, a bad witness. 
In the Old Testament, you might think this is a bit heavy, but be, be, be glad you don't live in the time of, of Moses and the judges. Time and time again in the Old Testament, read the book of Deuteronomy, the people are told to purge the evil from among them. And in those days, the penalty for a lawbreaker was stoning to death or execution, capital punishment. And just ponder this, God is extremely lenient to us that we don't stone people to death today. Well, I was going to come to that, Julia. Thank you. You've, um, you've nailed it. Thank you very much. God's desire was that evil should not be tolerated amongst his, his covenant people, sanctified, a holy nation. I mean, God, God was always merciful, but there were severe penalties so that others might take warning, that others might not do the same. They might not imbibe the ways of the nations around them, the pagans, the idolatry. God says that's why it's so important that you should be distinct as a nation. You should be holy. That's why you must deal ruthlessly with those who cause defilement amongst you. It says, in fact, if you want to look this up, Deuteronomy 19, verse 20, um, purge the evil among you so that others would hear, be afraid, and never again would evil be done in Israel. And that principle has not changed in the church of Jesus Christ. Under the new covenant, we're still to purge the evil from amongst us. But not, of course, in that way, through the, the means of loving, compassionate church discipline. And I sort of hesitate there. We have to be very careful how we handle this because I wouldn't want anybody to go away from here tonight taking this the wrong way, thinking that we can misuse this to control people or to offend people. Um, and people have done that. And it's, it's a disgrace to the church, but it's also a disgrace when this is completely ignored in the church. Church discipline has to be loving, has to be compassionate, has to be done from the right motives. We'll come to that in a minute. Think about a church that is full of unrepentant sin. What good is a church where the people who are called, mandated to love each other as Christ loved the church, but they don't even love each other, that they, they, enough to care about their behavior, their conduct, how it affects my brother and sister? What good is a church where we're called to love each other, where we don't actually care enough to actually turn a brother or sister away from the path of sin? We just turn a blind eye and say, it's nothing to do with us. It's not my business. Mustn't judge. Dear friends, the loving thing to do is to hold each other accountable in a loving and compassionate way. That was the first part. Why is the process necessary for the sinner and for the church for their sake? Secondly, what is the goal of this process? What are, we, what are we trying to achieve by taking these steps the Lord Jesus tells us to? Well, it's to bring back the wandering sheep, to lead the sinner to repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. The parable of the lost sheep, we see the sheep leaving the flock, and the owner of the sheep, he doesn't just shrug off that sheep and say, well, it doesn't matter, I've got 99 more. He is concerned for the well-being of that sheep that wanders off. It says here, doesn't it, that your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Every person in the church, every Christian matters. From the least to the greatest. There's no such thing as the least or the greatest in the church. We're all equal. But, you know, even those that seem to be insignificant in the church, every single person matters to God. And their spiritual well-being matters to God. 
If God is the one who seeks the sinner, or Christ is the one who seeks the sinner and brings them back, I want to ask you the question, how does God do that today? How does God bring people back who wander, Christians who wander away from the faith? I want to put it to you, it's it's using the means of his church. God uses human means often to achieve his purposes, and God has delegated to us the task of seeking the lost and bringing them back on his behalf. What are we trying to achieve in this process? We're trying to win our brother, aren't we? Verse 15, if if your brother sins against you, if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. When we seek to do this, we seek to win our brother, not drive them away, but to win them, to persuade them, to love them back into fellowship. In the next chapter, which we'll be dealing with next week, Jesus talks about the importance of forgiveness. If somebody has strayed, how important it is that we forgive them, no matter what the sin was. That's what we want to achieve, isn't it? Restoration. It says in verse 13, If he finds it, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. The Lord rejoices when a sinner comes home be it a sinner who's never been a, been a believer or a believer who's wandered away, the Lord rejoices and we ought to rejoice. That's what we're aiming for in this process, to see a time of rejoicing. Hallelujah, that brother or sister who got into serious sin has come back. We welcome them, we affirm them, we pray for them, we rejoice together. That's what we're praying for. What checks do you need to make before you engage on this process. Well, this is important, so I hope you'll listen to me here. This is just um, some of my pointers, my ideas. The first thing is you see the sin. So as I said, a brother or sister sins against you, they don't come and seek reconciliation. Somebody's told a lie about you, somebody's slandered you, somebody's stolen something from you. They haven't come to you and apologized. What do you do? I want to point out this this very important truth as well. This kind of church discipline only works, is only valid in a church where people have these meaningful relationships I mentioned earlier. This is, Jesus is talking about a church context where people actually do know each other, spend time together, they interact with each other, they share their lives together, they break bread together. You, You can't do this in a church where nobody knows each other properly. Nobody knows what's going on in each other's lives. That's why I love our little church at Calvary, because we could do better, but we know each other, don't we? We have a relationship. We're not just faces in a crowd. And I'm not knocking big churches. There's some good church, big churches who do this very well. But it's obviously harder the bigger the church gets. But we should have that accountability and that love. You can't go and correct someone if that person doesn't know that you love them. You have that relationship. This person has walked with me. Christopher's my dear friend. I always pick on Christopher because he's, he doesn't mind. But Christopher, if Christopher were to correct me about something in my life, I could take it from him because he's my dear brother. He served me and he served with me. And we have that relationship. In our church, we have a system of membership. I think it's, it's, a, it's not perfect, but it's a good system, a good principle. We have this commitment, a public commitment, like a, almost like a marriage vow, where, where people could stand up and they, they say, these are my people and I'm committed to them. 
and I know they're committed to me. It's a mutual relationship. And I know that if I, if I stray from the path, these people will love me enough to correct me. I'm, I'm up for that. And I know that I have a responsibility to correct them as well and help them should they go astray. That's what part of what being a member is, is just nailing your colours to the mast and saying, I'm up for this. So you've seen the sin. The first question to ask is, is it really a sin? When following this process, we're not to pick people up for things which are not really sinful. If someone finds my mug in the kitchen, I don't have a mug anymore, I used to have a mug. If somebody drinks from my mug, that's not a reason for me to bring them under church discipline, to bring it before the elders of the church. There are legitimate freedoms for Christians. I believe the Lord's Day, Sunday is very important. We all have different views on Sunday. We have a freedom about that. I'm not going to pull someone up in front of the church or or different witnesses because they bought an ice cream on the level on Sunday afternoon. And I think you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be, you know, engaging in buying things on Sunday. That is a matter of individual freedom for the Christian. I'm not going to pick someone up for having a pint in the pub on Friday night or whatever, Saturday night more likely in this church after CIC. Not me, I'm home sleeping away. It, I don't, the Bible doesn't say that drinking is a sin. You may decide that for you it's not acceptable and that's perfectly right and very advisable. But drunkenness is a sin. So we don't haul someone in front of the elder, in front of the church because they've had a pint or a glass of wine, but we do, we would perhaps if they were drunk and they, they were totally unconcerned about their drunkenness. Did you see the, the, the limit there? Some things are sin, some things are not sin. We're not to engage in this process for every single whim we have and things that we don't like about people or things that we find annoying, annoying habits. We've all got annoying habits, haven't we? You know, one of, my most, one of the things I can't stand is, is people on their phones all the time. They're talking to you, they're always looking at their phones. But that's not a reason to bring people in front of the church. That's not a sin, that's just an annoying habit. And I've got a few annoying habits as well, just ask Anya. Next question. Is it important enough to challenge? I won't say much about this. There are things that people do which are not right, but can be overlooked with a good conscience. There are degrees of sin. If someone speaks to me a bit sharply after the service, I might go home and say, well, is it really worth pursuing this? I don't think this person is in in great danger. I just know that this person is like this sometimes, and it's not worth pursuing this. A person's wisdom yields patience. It is one's glory to overlook an offence, says Proverbs 19, verse 11. Sometimes we've just got to let things go and say, well, it's not really that important. That's grace. Is my attitude right? This is a very important one. Please do not go down this road if your attitude is not right before God. Do a bit of praying. Do a bit of soul-searching. Ask God to shine his light upon you. Jesus said we should take the log out of our own eye before we judge someone else. Is there something that I have done to exacerbate the situation or to cause the situation? Is there some glaring, massive, neon sign flashing thing in my life which needs to be dealt with first? Am I doing this in the right attitude? Am I clothed with humility? Am I 
despising my brother, looking down on one of these little ones? Am I full of grace? Am I aware of my own great weakness and God's goodness to me? Have I prayed about it sufficiently? Or am I, am I doing this because I want to restore my brother and bring them back? Or am I doing it because I just want to set this person straight and get this off my chest because I'm so fuming inside? These things happen. And if that's the case, then we might say, well, this is not the time, this is not the place for me to deal with this because my attitude is not right. Our attitude should be one of love and concern for the individual and for the church. Let's go on to the steps that we ought to take according to Jesus. So, you've seen the sin. You're convinced that you have a right attitude and your motives are right to do this. And you feel that God would have you pursue this person with the aim of bringing them back to repentance. What do you do? Well, the first thing you do, Jesus says here, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Find an opportunity, not after church on a Sunday morning, a coffee time. Go and meet this person. Don't send an email. Don't send a text message or whatever. WhatsApp. Meet them. Make some time to have a chat. Show him his fault. The Greek word here, I believe, show him his fault, when, it, when it's translated, it means to, like, like in a court of law, to make a case. What you are doing, you are making a case to your brother and sister. You are opening the word of God. You are showing them from the word. Because our, our opinions don't matter, do they? What, what is, what's important is what the word of God says. You open the, the, what, the Bible and you say, brother or sister, I'm concerned about you. You've, you've hurt me in some way. I'm not doing this because I want revenge or to get back at you, but I'm concerned about you. And you take the conversation on from there. Hopefully that person will confess their sin. Hopefully they will apologize. Hopefully you can, you can have a hug or a handshake. And that's, that's the best outcome. You're restored to your brother. Your fellowship is restored and you can move on and you can take communion together, and you can enjoy fellowship together. But what if he doesn't listen? What if she doesn't listen? Well, Jesus says this. Take one or two others along. Verse 16. It's possible the person will say to you, that's not a sin, they deny it's a sin, or they justify it. They say, well, yeah, it may not be right, but God understands that's just the way I am. People say things like that. They might be angry at you. They might say, well, who are you to tell me? What you do is take a couple, couple of wise, trustworthy brothers or sisters along with you to meet with this person. Witnesses. And this is a principle that goes right back to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy says this. One witness is not enough to convict anyone of a crime or offence they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Why are the witnesses there? They're not there to take your side. They're not there to gang up on this person. They're there to, to look at the case and make a judgment with you. Do you have a valid point? Are you being overcritical or overzealous or legalistic? Or do you have a genuine point 
is this person guilty of sinning against you? And these people are there to weigh up the situation and make a judgment. So it's not just your word against theirs. You could be malicious, just accusing somebody. And the witnesses are there to ensure that justice is done. It's not a foolproof system, but it's a, I think it's, it's a safeguard, isn't it, that these witnesses should be there. And this is the context of verses 19 and 20. Again, I tell you that if, any, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. These verses are often misquoted. It's not saying that when you have a Bible study or a coffee with two, two people, people often say, well, the Lord is with us, two or three are gathered. That's certainly true, the Lord is omnipresent. Whenever his people meet, the Lord is there, but this is talking about the context of church discipline, where two or three people are gathered in the name of Jesus about his business to bring back the wandering sinner. Christ himself stands with them. Christ himself approves of what they're doing. Christ himself is making his appeal through them to the sinner. If the process is followed correctly, if the word of God is used correctly, if it is done lovingly and graciously in the name of Jesus, as I just said, he himself endorses what is being done. He is with those people. What about binding and loosing? Well, we, we looked at this a few weeks ago with Peter, didn't we? And Jesus says something very similar here. Whatever you bind... Um, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Perhaps a better translation will be whatever, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Something that's been done already. And as I, I mentioned a few weeks ago, this idea of binding and loosing is, is, a, is a rabbinical idea. The rabbis talked about this. Binding something was forbidding something. Making a, a judgment saying this is wrong. This is sinful according to the law of God. And loosing was permitting something saying this is permissible for God's people to do. And also in a sense that if somebody continued to break God's law, the rabbis would have the, the, um, the um, privilege, or not the privilege, the duty of saying, this person is unrepentant, this person is bound by the word of God, this person is guilty. And likewise, if this person were judged to be innocent, it would be, in a sense, them saying, we're loosing this person, this person is declared innocent. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that if godly people in the church come to the right conclusion, to the right verdict, he himself is with them. Heaven, heaven itself is in agreement with the action the church has taken. So if a sinner says, who are you to tell me not to commit adultery? Who are you to judge me? What we do, we take them to the word of God. And we say to them, actually, it's not just us acting on our own authority. But we stand on the word. And God has commanded us to do this. We could even take them to these verses in Matthew 18. We're following this process for your good. We are acting in obedience to the Lord. We would be negligent. We wouldn't be loving you at all if we did not do this. We are carrying out the work in Jesus' name. And through our actions, God is pursuing you and wooing you back and pleading with you to come to repentance. And we Christians, we can authoritatively declare what is acceptable to God and what is not acceptable to God because we have his words. 
we ourselves do not have the, the privilege of determining what is right or wrong. But we stand on God's word. We open God's word. We tell people, this is what the word of God says. Look at verse 19 again. I tell you, if, if two or three of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for my Father in heaven. I don't think this is talking about general prayer, because why on earth would Jesus just put in a, a random thing about prayer in this passage? What he's talking about here, I believe, is in some sense, in this context of church discipline, is that when, when we agree on a particular course of action, when we agree that this person um, is unrepentant and should be put out of the church, or this should be told to the church... God himself ratifies this. God himself sanctions this. God himself approves of this. And, and in heaven, in a sense, there is an agreement about this. And certainly when this process is being followed, the, the believer should pray beforehand most earnestly. And then afterwards, if this person still hasn't repented, to commit them to the Lord and pray. Say, Lord, you see this person has not repented. Please, Lord, will you deal with them as you see fit and give us wisdom to know how to deal with them. And the Lord himself will answer that prayer. Because it's done in his name. Suppose that person does not even listen to the two or three witnesses. Then you must tell it to the church. There's a right and a wrong way of doing this. I think it's fair to give that person a warning and say, if you don't repent from this within two weeks or whatever it might be, a week or a month, then this will be told to the members of the church. Everyone will know about this. And hopefully that will, will bring the person to their senses and they will come back to the right path. If he doesn't repent, the church should gather and they should explain the situation graciously, patiently, compassionately. We're very sorry about our brother or sister. They've sinned, we've corrected them, we've been through this process, they haven't listened so far, and we're going to tell it to you, and we urge you to, to plead with this brother or sister, to contact them, to ask them to come back and repent. And then the church would pray that this person would change. But if, very sadly, and it does happen, this person still refused to repent. There's only one alternative, which is a very, very sad thing, which none of us wants to happen, but may be necessary for the church and for the sinner, is to put them outside the fellowship of the church. Verse 18, I tell you the truth. Oh, sorry, that's the binding and loosing. If he, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector pagans and tax collectors were people outside the covenant community of God cut off from the privileges and blessings and the social life of God's people dear friends if this were to happen to a person it does not mean that we should treat this person badly we should not completely ostracize them or shun them but it means that we are no longer to regard them as a member of the church or even, in a sense, as a true Christian with a credible testimony. Paul puts this in 1 Corinthians 5, talking about a very similar situation. Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Get rid of that yeast that's corrupting the church. Put it outside the church. 
But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Of course, at the time of the New Testament, eating with someone signified close friendship and acceptance and fellowship. And Paul Paul says very clearly, if someone claims to be a believer but is walking in darkness, unrepentant sin, They have to be put outside. You cannot treat them as a believer. And that's for their good and for the good of the church. Paul says this also in 1 Corinthians 5, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. We find it's very difficult, don't we? Such a person will be excluded from membership, from the Lord's Supper, from the privilege of serving in the church, from representing the church. I think it would be acceptable for people to still contact that person or if they saw them on the street to say hello. But you can't have this kind of matey-matey pat on the back. Oh, how are you doing, bruv? Everything's fine. Treating that person like a believer. That's not doing that person any favours whatsoever and it's not right before God. Any contact with that person who's been put outside of the church must communicate the following. We love you, we want you back in the fellowship of the church. We cannot condone what you're doing. We've been through the biblical process, you haven't listened. We cannot enjoy fellowship, we cannot pretend that there's nothing wrong until you genuinely repent and show fruit in keeping with repentance. We will be praying for that person every single day, pleading with the Lord to bring them back because we miss them. Dear friends, one of the worst things we can do for people is to make them believe they're a Christian when they've got no credible testimony. That is absolutely cruel and heartless to do that. Somebody who's got no evidence, shows no evidence of being a Christian, not open to being corrected, not open to the word of God, not repentant, to to make that person think that they're a Christian, when actually they need to be told, we don't think you are a Christian. We don't know your heart, but what the evidence we can see, the fruit we can see, suggests that you are not a believer. That person needs to deal with that and repent and come to the Lord. They're in mortal danger. But to pat them on the back and pretend that they're a believer and everything's fine, actually can pat them on the back all the way to hell. May God give us grace. This is, this is tough. Churches have to grapple with this. Pastors, elders, members of churches, Christians, for the sake of the church. And hopefully this person will be convicted by the Holy Spirit. Hopefully they'll miss the fellowship of the believers. Hopefully they'll miss the sweet fellowship around the Lord's table. Hopefully they'll come to their senses, be restored, welcome back. My friend in London, Wesley, um, in his church, there were two men that were found guilty of serious misdemeanors. The church followed this process. One of the men left the church in a huff, went to another church that didn't care about his sin, just accepted him, never came back. But the other man, by God's grace, did come back. He repented and was restored to the fellowship. And you can imagine the love and the acceptance, the joy when he came back. I heard about a church in America had a 1,000 people, a big church. The pastor estimated that in the last few years, about 30 marriages had been saved because church discipline had been administered. Dear friends, this really matters. This is a safeguard for our souls. It's not an optional extra. We need wisdom and grace in the way we actually do it, 
but it's important. It's too important to ignore. As I said, it doesn't always work. It's not always successful. John talks about those going out from the church who were never truly part of the church. They weren't converted. But by God's grace, some will be, be won back and they'll say, thank you that you love me enough to obey the words of the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for using your people to draw me back, a, a wandering sinner, back to your people. Please remember, dear friends, this is for our good. I'm, I'm glad to be in a church where people watch out for my soul. I know that if I were to wander off, there are brothers and sisters here who would correct me, who would bring me back. And I need that because I don't trust myself. As I said at the beginning, this can only be practiced in a church context where there's that genuine love every single day of the year. People caring for each other. People praying for each other. To the point that they could say anything to you and you know that they, they, that they love you. They would do anything for you. They would lay down their lives for you. Then you can talk about these kinds of things. You know, our souls are the most important thing we have. Much more important than our bodies, our lives, our souls. And this is about protecting our souls and protecting the souls of our brothers and sisters. So, we've gone through this quite quickly tonight, but I want you to be encouraged. Uh, as we, we, it's not going to be perfect in a church. We're going to make mistakes. It's going to be messy. It's not a neat process, but this is the idea. Follow this process. If you want any more advice or guidance, speak to some of us. We're happy to talk about it. But praise God for the local church. Praise God for this safeguard for our souls. It's good. Let's praise God together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And we, we pray, Lord, that...